think of when I just say the word neighbor? Neighbor, what are the first things that come to mind? Some of you are probably wanting me to like have a cardigan on and like take it off, right? I can borrow Jason's cardigan for that. Um, <laughs> when I think of neighbor, like the first thing that comes to mind, I, I kind of did this experiment on myself this week. I was like, okay, what comes to mind when I say neighbor? What are the first things that came to mind? And I had three different thoughts that, that kind of came to the forefront. The first, strangely enough, I had this memory come back to me of a guy named Sleepy Mangle. That is his real name, all right? Sleepy Mangle, who uh, we went to college together with. Uh, Derek and I were roommates in college. And so Derek and I, our, our room was above the room of the legendary Sleepy Mangle. And every day when he went to class, he would crank boys to men, like to the top, right? And he would lock his door and leave and go to class. And it's like, oh, I hate boys to men now, okay? Even though they're smooth. But, but uh, anyway, so that's immediately what I thought of for some reason. Uh, the second thing I thought of was when Sarah and I were um, living in an apartment in Carborough, um, I was talking with one of our neighbors there that lived in the apartment complex. And we were talking, and she uh, decided to confide something, right? And she goes, she leans in, and after, you know, we had all gotten to know each other a little bit, she leans in, and she says, don't, don't tell anybody, but I'm a witch. And I was like, <laughs> And just my natural instinct, my natural reaction was I leaned back, and I said, don't tell anybody, don't be freaked out, but. <laughs> she ran. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then the third thing that I think of is I think of this little brick duplex in this town called Wilmore, Kentucky. All right, Sarah and I moved to Wilmore, Kentucky uh, to go to seminary, and so we move into one half of this little brick duplex, and moving into the other half were Justin and Janine Simmons, okay? And that's how Justin and I actually met, was we all shared a wall, basically, okay? And now here we are uh, doing this together, which is, God has a great sense of humor. He had to be, like, loving that day, right? So so I love it, and it's just great to, to look back on that and just to see, like, the how they taught me, really, a lot of what it means to be a neighbor and how they shape that idea for me. <coughs> neighbor. Okay? So so what comes to mind when you say neighbor? And that word comes when you hear that word, what comes to your mind? Neighbor. In the story that we're studying today in the parables, as we go through this series called Two, as we talk about these different parables uh, that Jesus tells where he sets these two things up against each other. Repeatedly he sets them up as we said last week, it, it, a parable is a way to communicate truth by way of comparison, right? It's a story that communicates truth by way of comparison. And over and over again, Jesus sets these two things up next to each other, and, and often to help us understand what the kingdom of God is. And in one of his most famous parables that we're studying today, he sets up this dichotomy between two neighbors, okay? Two neighbors, and he really stretches our idea of what it means to be a neighbor. And so he tells us a story about this neighbor who is in need and the neighbor who shows mercy on him. Okay? This is found in the book of Luke in chapter 10. If you want to go ahead and turn there, 
uh, starting with verse 25, okay? Luke chapter 10. Now, one, one cool thing about Luke and the parables is this. Luke has like 15 more parables in his book than, than anybody else. Okay, John only about two, Mark about four, and then Matthew and Luke really is where the parables are, are very strong, okay? And so, but Luke has like 15 more parables than anybody else. And so he just piles them on. Most of them fall here between chapters 10 and uh, chapter 20. Okay, so in this span there is where most of his parables come. And it says Luke is kind of telling the story of Jesus on this journey as Jesus is traveling. And this is where most of the parables that Luke tells um, come out of this. In this section, we have some of Jesus' most famous parables ever, including the one we're looking at today, the Good Samaritan. Also, in this story, in this set of parables, you have um, the story of the prodigal son. Okay? And both of those terms, Good Samaritan, prodigal son, they tell us just how impactful of a person in history Jesus was. Because even in our culture today, people who maybe have no religious connection whatsoever, people who would not associate themselves with the cause of Christ in any way at all, they still understand even those terms. They understand what the idea of a prodigal son is. Just say that term. It's, it's all in our vocabulary, right? Or even the idea of good Samaritan. Good Samaritan is a common term that we use to mean like someone who, who does good deeds, usually even for a total stranger. Um, that just shows the impact that Jesus Christ continues to have. That just phrases and stories that he tells were so impactful then that they have worked their way to the very fabric of our way of thinking even today. So here we are, Luke chapter 10 and the story <coughs> of the Good Samaritan. Here's how it starts out. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Very bad idea, by the way. Okay. Um, Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. You will understand what true life is about. But he wanted to justify himself. So the expert in the law asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus asked. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. 
Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus, thank you for the power of your words, for the creativity of them, for the way that you just, I don't know, you, you tell a story that still, even today, strikes at our hearts. You tell a story that has this, this timelessness to it. And a story that cuts right to the heart of the issue of what the question is about. So today I pray that you would give us ears to hear. As we read over your story, as we study this story. And that the truth of it would sink into our hearts. And that even today we would be just all struck again by the way that it strikes so closely at our hearts and by the way that it, is, it just stings with this hard-to-swallow truth. Help us to understand who our neighbors are and help us to be moved to act with mercy and compassion and love towards them. Help us. In your name we pray. So as, as we study this story, we're just going to take bit by bit here. And we've got to place ourselves in um, the context of the people who were originally hearing. And, and as we do that, then we will understand just how brilliant this story was, just how controversial this story was. And this common term, Good Samaritan, how absolutely uncommon of a thought it was when Jesus first spoke it. Okay? So right there at the beginning. It says that there's an expert in the law. Someone who knows the law of Moses backward and forward. They, they were a teacher in the law. This would have been a person of great intelligence, of great respect in his community. And so he comes and it says that he tries to test Jesus. Now, as Jesus is, is gaining popularity, as people are beginning to follow Jesus more and more, he is becoming more and more of a threat to the religious structure of his day. And so the religious structure is responding by trying to lay these traps for him. Trying to trip him up to get him to say something that will contradict the law. And something that they can kind of pin him on, right? And so this is what the expert in the law is doing. So he asks Jesus this question. And Jesus, being the brilliant rabbi that he is, he takes the man's question and he turns it back on him, right? And he says, well, what do you think? Okay? And as he does this, then, it, then the ball is actually back in his court, and he's the one who has to give the answer to his own question. He has this pressure to answer correctly, and he does. And he says, here's what we need to do. First of all, you need to love God with all you have and all you are. And secondly, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And see, the brilliance of that answer is this, that it actually completely covers the entire law. That's what the entire law is about. It lays out these ways in which we should love God. And it lays out these ways in which we should love other people. Walk through the Ten Commandments and every single one of them you will see deals with those two ideas. Loving God, loving people. And so this is his answer. And Jesus says, great answer. You answered correctly. If you will grab a hold of this, if you will do this, then you will experience what life is meant to be. Then it says that the man then try to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus the question, but who is my neighbor? But who is my neighbor? The justification thing, it, 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 there's actually two pieces to it here. First of all, 
Okay, he realizes that he hasn't tripped Jesus up with this question, and so he throws another one back at him, and he's going to try to get him again, okay, and, and try to do that. The second part of it is this. One of the um, versions of Scripture actually uh, translates it this way, and it says he was looking for a loophole. All right, he's looking for a loophole. In other words, this man wants to know exactly what his obligation is. Okay, so I've got to love my neighbor. Okay, let's break down this giant idea and put it into this practical application. So what exactly does that mean? What does that look like for me? Who is my neighbor? And so he's trying to narrow down the reach of responsibility in his life, right? He's trying to cut it down. Now, let's see. If I'm going to love someone as myself, I don't want to do that any more than I absolutely have to. So let's narrow it down. Exactly what are we talking about? So he lobs this question back at Jesus again. What are my obligations here? Let's be frank about it. Tell me straight up what I have. And Jesus, once again, in his brilliance, instead of just giving him an answer, he begins to tell him this story. Now, before we go any further, let me just make this statement. Ask your questions. Ask your questions. Okay? Now, the question that this guy asked is not out of great motivation. Okay? But the questions that you have, the questions that you have that are stirring in you, that are kind of boiling in you, don't be afraid to ask those questions. Don't be afraid to ask God your questions. Because of a question, we get one of the, uh, the best known and best loved stories that Jesus tells. It's in response to a question. What brilliance are we missing out on? Because we are afraid to ask our questions. Don't be afraid. Ask. Okay? Ask your questions. God is big enough to handle them. He is not afraid of them. He doesn't want you to be afraid of them either. Ask your questions. Cool. So, Jesus begins to answer the question by telling a story. And so he says, there was this man that is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Okay, now the original hearers would have heard that from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and they would have understood the geography that's happening here. Okay. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is somewhere between like 15 and 20 miles, okay? And the road is a very dangerous road. It was notorious, absolutely notorious for being a dangerous road to travel because it goes through some desert places. It goes through some extremely like rocky terrain. And there are all kinds of places on this journey for robbers to hide. And so that's what they would do. Robbers would just hide out in these kind of in, in these spots in the rocks, wait for a traveler to come along by themselves, and they would just jump this person, right? And, and they would beat them, they would take what they had, and they would get away because there's no one else to, to see it. And so it's like this perfect spot for the robbers to hide. And so immediately the people know, okay, this is a dangerous road. And this happens. This wasn't a surprise in the story. This was a thing that happened. Okay? And so they hear that. And so they're feeling for this man. They're like, man, what is going to happen to this guy? So he's beaten and that he was left half dead. Okay, He's left almost dead here. And so as they're hearing this, then, then the tension begins to build in the story. And there's this sense of relief that comes on as Jesus says, but just by chance, it just so happened that a priest was passing that way. So the 
people hearing this story are the sigh of relief. They're like, okay, help is coming. Someone's going to help this man. Then the tension mounts in the story when Jesus said, but the priest crossed over to the other side of the road and passed the man by and left him there. People are confused. This, this is a terrible thing to hear what is going on. Jesus continues to fill with the tension. As he says, then a Levite came by. Now a Levite was much like a priest. Okay, They were involved in the religious structure. They, were, uh, they would assist in the worship at the temple. And so they were a part of that whole um, the religious worship experience and their responsibility in that. And so the Levite comes by and he does the same thing. He crosses over. He ignores the man's situation. He turns his head and he walks past leaving him there. Leaving him there. Now here's the deal. When you're a priest and when you're a Levite, there are all kind of things that, that you have to keep straight. All kind of rules that you have to understand. And one of them is this. Okay, if you, like, have touched a dead body, okay, then part of the law was that you were declared unclean and could not enter into the temple for worship. And if you couldn't enter in for worship, you absolutely couldn't enter in and help administer worship. So probably the <coughs> internal excuse and justification that's going on inside of the priest and the Levite is their service to God. Isn't that strange? So probably the reason that they passed this person by isn't just stone cold, like lack of compassion whatsoever. It's their religious obligation and their idea of their own service to God. And they say, if I touch this man, then I'm unclean and I can't help all of these other people <coughs> worship, so I better leave him alone. How twisted and tangled we get it. How twisted and tangled we get things. And so out of their own service to God, they leave this man laying. Wow. So the tension is really building. And now the twist. Now the twist. Jesus says, but then a Samaritan man passed by. And there's probably a gasp in the crowd because this is not good. Okay? This is not good. When they hear a Samaritan coming, okay, if the priest and the Levite left this man, then what the Samaritan is probably going to do is finish the job on this man who is half dead. Here's what we need to understand. The relationship between Samaritan people and Jewish people was, was extremely, this this deep, deep division between them. And there's this deep history of hatred and hurt between these two groups of people, okay? You just try to get people to understand like just the intensity of emotion here, the emotionally charged thing going back, relationship between these two people. Uh, maybe to put it in something that we can kind of grasp, okay? There's a certain rivalry that goes on here. Right? Yeah. There you go, right? And uh, there just happens to be some kind of game coming up, right? I don't know, okay? Well, the rest of the world, like, is all crazy about the Super Bowl. That's just a warm-up for us. Right? <laughs> it's a real game, right? Okay. I love how everything stops around here, by the way, when the Duke Carolina game comes up. It's like a tractor beam. It's all we think about, right? Okay. 
So there's this deep rivalry, right? And there's this intense, like, oh, just at each other's throats kind of thing. And, and maybe that kind of gets it, but not really. Is that Ryan's plane right there? That kind of looks like Ryan's plane. Um, <laughs> there you go, buddy. Okay. That kind of gets to it, but not really close, man. It goes way deeper than that. And in the end, we love basketball. We love this rivalry, and it's a great thing. But in the end, we understand that there are things, just a few things, but some things that are bigger than that, okay? And, and so we get that. The, the second might be kind of this idea, right? Okay? Then we're getting a little more personal, right? And maybe tension's rising just a little bit in the room as, as we put that. As people begin to make their associations of, I'm with that side or I'm with that side, right? And we kind of live in this context right now where, where the, the political debate, man, is just so, so contentious, right? And it's like this, this deep division, deep division between the two sides on the political divide. And maybe this gets it a little bit closer to the point, but not really, not really. Illustrate the kind of history and hurt that is going on between these two groups of people. It's actually probably more like this. Even just like seeing that image, that's a painful painful thing. It's a painful, painful thing to think that there were there was a time in our history as a nation where certain people had to drink out of one water fountain and certain people had to drink out of another for no other reason other than the color of their skin. This is deep, deep hurt right here. This is a history of hurt and hate. And this is the only thing that kind of comes close to what we're talking about in this story. Those other things, man, those are trivial compared to this. Trivial compared to this. This is deep, deep hurt. Okay, we can take that off. This is the history that's going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. Their difference has to do with the regions that they lived in. They're, they're, they kept completely separate. Um, Jews would do their best not to travel through Samaria, if at all possible. Um, but it's more than that. It was racial. It was a racial situation. Because even though they shared a common lineage, Samaritans who ha had originally been you know, they were all part of the same Jewish family. Samaritans had intermarried with other nations. And so now Jews refused to have anything to do with them because of that. Because of their race, there was this completely different, like just this line that says, we will not cross this line, you won't cross this. And it was religious. It was religious because... The Jews were so protective of, of the purity of their religion, and they felt like the Samaritans, theirs had become syncretic, where it was like 
the combination of some things, and it was, we don't want anything to do with you whatsoever. We will keep ourselves separate. Stay away from us. And the hatred and the hurt cross both ways. Even the, the chapter just before the one we're in, it says that Jesus tried to travel through Samaria. He wasn't welcomed there. He wasn't welcomed. They didn't want him to come. They, they wouldn't give him any place to stay. It went both ways. It was this hatred and hurt that was deep. That was deep. That was deep. So can you imagine the twist in the story now? When Jesus says, then a Samaritan came along. And he stopped. And he helped this Jewish man who had beaten, been beaten up. And he took him and he put him on his own donkey. And he, and he tended to his wounds. He put oil and wine on his wounds. And he was careful and tender with this man to try to bring healing to him. And he walked him to an inn. And he put this man up in an inn. And he gave two silver coins. Two silver coins would have been the equivalent of two days worth of wages for this man. And as far as how long that would have enabled the, the Jewish man who was injured to stay in that inn, it, it says that it would have given him up to two months of being able to live there. This is lavish love being poured on this man from the most unlikely person. And he just pours it out. And it's just this most shocking twist in the story. And then Jesus ends the whole story by saying this, you tell me who is your neighbor. You tell me who's your neighbor. And once again, he turns the question back on the man. Who was the neighbor in this story? Expert of the law. And the man answers back. The one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. Notice how he can't even allow himself to say the word Samaritan. He can't even allow himself to give them that much credit. But he knows the answer is clear. He hangs his head and says, the one who showed mercy in Jesus answers, then go and do the same. Go and do likewise. This man was hoping to narrow his reach of responsibility. Okay, exactly how far does my obligation go? I don't want to love anyone any more than I absolutely have to. So let's narrow the reach of responsibility and Jesus just close it completely out of the water. Uh, he says, you, you think it's like the person closest to you? Think it's going to let you know and love and have a relationship with? No, it's your worst enemy. It's not just the last person you'd expect. It's the last person you would choose. Get that person in your mind. Your absolute enemy, the last person you would choose. That is your neighbor. And the entire law of God, the entire story comes down to this. Love God with everything that you have and everything that you are and love your neighbor. The last person you'd expect, the last person you would choose in the same reckless and ridiculous kind of way. That's what love looks like. <coughs> He expands this reach. Love is this kind of like redistricting conspiracy. Right? You turn around and the lines that you had drawn are 
completely blown away. And Jesus says, you thought that they all fit so nicely like this. No. Love is so bigger than that. We have a phrase that we say around here all the time that's kind of like a mantra for us. It's like at the heart of who we are, right? And it is this. Love has the courage to cross every line drawn by hate and climb every wall built by fear. Where do we get that from? Where do we get that kind of reckless and ridiculous love? We inherited it from our Father. That's where. Because that's the way He is. From the very beginning, from the moment we fell into sin, He has a rescue plan to come and get us. And He crossed every line and He climbed every wall to come and and to get us. And to show us just how far his love reaches. And he says to us, your love has to do the same. The last person you expect, the last person you would choose. Over the last two weeks, news has been um, coming to us from Egypt and from the protest that's happening in Egypt. And this beautiful picture has come out of it. Let me show it to you. Okay, I'm not sure if you can see that very well. But in the middle, what you have are Egyptian Muslims who are praying at the time when, it, when, when they have to pray um, through the day. And so they're following that, and they are kneeling in the middle of the protest. As just all this danger is around them, they are kneeling in the middle and they are praying. And there are people that are holding hands, forming a circle around them, holding hands so that they can do this to protect them and to guard them while they do this. And the, the news has come out um, associated with this picture that these people that are holding hands are Egyptian Christians. This is a picture of what it means to be a neighbor. Okay? And listen, I'm not trying to talk about some kind of plural, plural, pluralistic idea of religion. Okay? I'm not trying to talk about that. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that belief in Him brings salvation because He lived, because He died, because He was raised again, because He's coming back. That's what I believe. The gospel is real. The gospel is true. But this is a picture of people who live out what it means to be a neighbor. These are true Christians who take it seriously to be a neighbor like Jesus said beautiful picture. You wouldn't expect it, maybe. But that's the beauty of love. It catches you when you least expect it. Okay? Where do we get it from? We inherited it from our Father. His love is so deep. His love is so pure. His love is so marvelous that when it touches us, we just want to give it back. Right? It works its way all the way through us, leaving nothing in us untouched until it spills out of us to the people around us and to the world around us, it looks crazy. It looks crazy, okay? Why would you love anyone who, who, who is your enemy with a reckless and ridiculous kind of love? That seems crazy. <coughs> and the reason is because that's the way he loved us first. Let me read you this. this is, these are the lyrics from a song that uh, Jason actually brought to my attention this past week. And there was this band called Ascend the Hill, and they put out this, uh, you know, uh, a worship CD with, with hymns done in a modern version. And one of the hymns on there, I loved it. I connected with it so much because my grandparents used to sing this hymn together. I have this great memory of them singing together. 
And so I've been playing that song all week long. And there's one verse in particular, the third verse, that just gets me. Listen to these words. It says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is the depth of the love of God. I told my dad about it, that I had found this, and I told him, and he says, you know, you know where the, that third verse comes from? Those words you're talking about that you love so much, do you know where that comes from? There's a story behind this song that these words that I just read to you were found scrawled across a room in an old, crude, insane asylum. Someone who had been locked away in a crude way because they were seen as, as insane wrote these words. The love of God seems so crazy to us, right? It's so beyond what we see as normal. It's so beyond our normal way we would think and live. But this is the real thing. This is what it's about. This is the depth of the love of God. Where do we get this crazy idea from? From our Father. He showed us the way. He says this is what it's about. Love God with absolutely everything that you have. And love your neighbor in the same reckless and ridiculous way. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The last one I'd expect, the last one I'd choose. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise.